The Epistle of James, in many respects, is a how-to manual for daily Christian living. Of the 108 verses in this epistle, 54 of those contain commands. Half contain commands. However, instead of merely commanding believers what we are supposed to do, James teaches us how to do it. He teaches us how to profit from trials. He teaches us how to obtain wisdom. He teaches us how to overcome temptation. And he teaches us how to communicate. And so James' goal is to apply the Christian faith to our day-to-day living. So being a practical how-to for Christian living, there are a number of allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus taught how to apply God's law to one's daily life. For example, James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That parallels Matthew 5-10-12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James 1.4 And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That parallels Matthew 5.48 Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. James 1.5 But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. James 1, 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Matthew 7, 22 to 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. James four eleven and 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Matthew 7, 1-5 Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at this speck that is in your brother's eye? Do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And James 5, 1-3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. And that compares to Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the epistle of James is the earliest New Testament book written between A.D. 47 and 49. And several facts establish the date of this writing. First, the one word greeting in James 1.1, greetings, supports an early writing. This term greeting, Cairo, is used only one other time in the New Testament. Writing to the Gentiles with the decision of the Jerusalem Council, James wrote in Acts 15.23, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings, Cairo. Later New Testament epistle greetings enjoin theological terms such as grace, peace, mercy, and love. This is evidence that a more theological greeting developed amongst the church after the writing of the epistle of James. Second, the recipients of this epistle were still assembling for worship in the synagogues, James 2.2. For if a man comes into your assembly, your synagogue with a gold ring and dresses in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man with dirty clothes. The term assembly in James 2.2 translates the Greek term synagogue or synagogue. That the church was still meeting in synagogues demonstrates that it was predominantly Jewish and the church was still in its infancy. And third, for a strictly Jewish letter, lacking any mention of the Jerusalem Council of A.D. 49 or the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, indicates an early date for the writing of this epistle. Now regarding the opening verse, James 1.1. 1, 1. Often people will skip the greeting thinking that it contains nothing of value or importance. However, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. Verse 1 is profitable for teaching. Verse 1 does more than name the author and recipients. Verse 1 provides theological truths for believers while also providing the purpose of the letter. And so in James 1.1, we have the servant to the scattered and struggling saints. So as we approach verse 1, we're going to look at two aspects here. The aspect of the servant and then the aspect of the scattered and struggling saints. We're going to begin with the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, part A. Let's look at James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This epistle opens by introducing us to the writer, James. The Greek text states that the name of the author is Iakobos, or Jacob, the Hellenized form of the Hebrew name Yaakov. Later, when the Greek name Iakobos was translated into Latin, it became Jacobas, and later Jacomas. When Anglicized, the Latin Jacomas became James. In the New Testament, there are four possible candidates for authorship. The first is James, the father of Judas the Apostle, Luke 6.16. 6, the second is James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Lesser, in Matthew 10, 2 and 3. Their obscurity of these two individuals and their lack of contribution to the New Testament writings cast serious doubt on their candidacy for authorship. The third candidate is J John's brother, 
the Apostle James. Found in Matthew 10, verse 2. However, Acts 12, 2 tells us that he was beheaded by Herod Agrippa in A.D. 44. Since the epistle of James was penned between A.D. 47 and 49, three to five years after his death, it makes the Apostle James unqualified to be the author. The fourth candidate is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Matthew 13, 55 to 56. Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Now, during the early ministry, or the earthly ministry of Jesus, James was not a believer, John 7, 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. However, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James, and he, along with his brothers, became believers. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Acts 1.14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Now after salvation, James served as an apostle or sanctioned messenger of the church. Galatians 1.19, Paul said, I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now the term apostle is often limited to the twelve the twelve apostles. But in the text of Scripture, we see that others were also named apostles who were not counted among the twelve. In Luke 9, Jesus commissioned and sent the twelve apostles. And afterwards in Luke 10, he commissioned and sent out seventy more apostles. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Luke 10, 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he was going to come. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul made a distinction between the 12 apostles and these other apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 and 8. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Indeed, the twelve apostles were a special group who met unique qualifications. However, others, such as Barnabas, Paul, Andronicus, Junia, Titus, James, the brother of Jesus, Epaphroditus, and Silas, were commissioned as apostles or missionaries sent out by the church. Later, James became an elder in the church of Jerusalem. Acts 21, verse 18 and the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. Paul noted that James was one of the three pillars, or one of the three main elders of the Jerusalem church. Galatians 2 and verse 9. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Being one of the three pillars or main elders, James served as the bishop or pastor of the Jerusalem church. Acts 12, 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, Peter described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Acts 15, verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, Listen to me. 
Acts 21, 17, and 18, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now during the council of Jerusalem, James, as the bishop of the church, took the lead and issued the verdict on the Gentile inclusion into the church. After the council, James wrote a letter to the Gentile believers detailing the findings of the council. Acts 15, 19-20. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them. And so, as we already saw, he used the same greeting to the Gentiles as he does here in the epistle bearing his name which confirms that both letters were written by the same James. And therefore, we can say that based on his prominence in the Jerusalem church as an elder, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the only viable candidate for the authorship of the epistle which bears his name. Now, among the Jews, James was known as Jacob the Just because of his faithfulness to God's law. As well, he was also known as Camel Knees, because he spent so much time in prayer. A camel's knees are bulky and hard because they get up by pushing off of their knees and they lay down by resting on their knees. By referring to James as camel knees, the people were saying that he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that the knees were hard like a camel. Now regarding James's nicknames, the Jewish historian Hegesippus a Jewish Christian who lived between A.D. 110 and 180, said this, quote, He drank neither wine nor fermented liquors. He abstained from animal food. A razor never came upon his head. He never anointed with oil and never used a public bath. He was in the habit of entering the temple alone and was often found upon his bended knees and interceding for the forgiveness of the people so that his knees became as hard as camels in consequence of his habitual supplication and kneeling before God. Now James died as a martyr in A.D. 62. According to Josephus, Eusebius, and Hegesippus, the high priest Ananus, son of the former high priest Annas who tried Jesus, falsely accused James of violating God's law and ordered him stoned. James was taken atop the wall of the city of Jerusalem, and commanded to publicly renounce his faith in Jesus. When the people gathered, instead of renouncing his faith, James preached the gospel. Angered, the high priest Ananus shoved James off the wall, plunging him 40 feet to his death. The mob who had gathered then proceeded to stone James' lifeless body. And my question is, believer, here in the West, would we have the same tenacity to pronounce our faith in Jesus in the face of death. Would we be like James? Now as the introduction continues, James identifies himself to his readers as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the term bondservant, doulos, refers to an individual who gives up all of their rights to serve the will of another. Under God's law, being a bondservant, though permanent, was entered voluntarily. The term implies that such an individual to, is to be absolutely obedient and unwaveringly loyal to his or her master. 
Now, by referring to himself as a bondservant, James humbled himself, choosing to identify as the servant of Jesus Christ instead of his brother. And as well, even though he was a leader in the church of Jerusalem, he understood that being a leader meant being a servant. You see, being a leader in the church is not about being the greatest, but being a servant of all. Matthew 20, 26-28 It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As Peter explained later in 1 Peter 5, 3, Leaders are not to be lords over the people under their care, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. You see, it is a servant-like attitude that distinguishes biblical leadership from any and all other styles of leadership. Any believer serving as a leader in the church would do well to humble themselves and seek to serve God and his people. Now, while being a bondservant in the Greek culture was viewed negatively, from a Jewish perspective, it was an honor. Throughout the Old Testament, the title bondservant was applied to those who were God's messengers and spoke with divine authority. Joshua, Samuel, David, and the prophets were all referred to as Yahweh's doulas, or bondservants. Joshua 24, 29, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant, the doulas of the Lord. Samuel said, 1 Samuel 3, 10, speak for your servant, your doulas is listening. Psalm 89, verse 20, I have found David my servant, my doulas. 2 Kings 17, 23, as he spoke through all his servants, the doulas, the prophets. And in the New Testament, Paul, Peter, and Jude also refer to themselves as Christ's doulas or bondservants. Romans 1.1, 1, 1. Paul a bondservant, a doulos of Christ Jesus. For 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter a bondservant, a doulos, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1.1, 1, 1, Jude a bondservant, a doulos of Jesus Christ. And no doubt James viewed being a bondservant as an honor. Now James states here that he was a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James 1.1 is the only reference in the New Testament where this phrase is used. And grammatically, the phrase is in the genitive case, creating a parallel to establish Jesus' equality with God. In essence, James stated that he served Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord. And the only other time James refers to Jesus in this epistle is in James 2.1, and again he applies both titles, Lord and Christ, to Jesus. Now by referring to God as Jesus Christ the Lord was blasphemous to the Jews and traitorous to the Romans. See, to the Jews, calling Jesus Lord was blasphemy because in their mind, no man could be God. To the Romans, calling Jesus the Lord was traitorous because there was no Lord but Caesar in their perspective. And sadly, for many people today, calling Jesus Lord is just some cliche slogan. In reality, when you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
You are declaring that he is the sovereign one and that you are his servant. Jesus Christ is God and Lord. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's Lord. Lord is used in the New Testament for the Hebrew title of divinity, Yahweh, emphasizing Jesus' deity. The name Jesus, Iesus in the Greek or Yeshua in the Hebrew, emphasizes his humanity. Jesus is God in the flesh. As well, Jesus means Yahweh saves. Indeed, Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And that he came to save is communicated in the title Christ or Christos. Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah, meaning the anointed one. In the Old Testament, the anointed one referred to the one who redeems. And so by calling Jesus the Christ, it emphasized his salvific work of redemption. That Jesus is both Lord and Christ was a claim that began to be circulated amongst Jewish believers following Peter's sermon on Pentecost. In Acts 2.36, Peter declared, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That James was a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ meant that as God's messenger he spoke on behalf of the Lord and with the Lord's authority. Friends, one's authority and effectiveness in ministry is dependent on the source of that authority. If you're trying to serve the Lord based on the authority of your education or your title or your accomplishments or your reputation you're going to fail. Service to the Lord can only be accomplished solely upon the authority of Christ. And like James and the others, believer, you and I are bondservants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, previously we were bondservants of sin, but now we're the bondservants of righteousness. Romans 6, 17 and 18. Thanks be to God, that though you were slaves, bondservants, doulas, of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves, doulas, of righteousness. And as bondservants, we are to be absolutely obedient and unwaveringly loyal to Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.10 for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striking to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Most importantly, to identify as a bondservant is to identify with Christ in his humility and obedience. Philippians 2, 5-8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, bondservant, doulos, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Absolute obedience, unwavering loyalty, 
and humility means surrendering to Christ's lordship. Friends, what does it say when we grumble about doing God's will or when we're being negligent in executing his will? Let's make sure that we are behaving as bondservants of Christ. Ask yourself, am I being a bondservant of Christ? Am I absolutely obedient to him? Am I unwavering in my loyalty to him? Am I humbling myself before him? That's what it means to be a bondservant. Humbling yourselves and willingly and loyally obeying Christ. And so we are introduced to James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But the servant writes to the scattered and struggling saints. Let's again look at James 1.1. 1, 1. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. The scattered and struggling saints. The scattered and struggling saints. A cursory reading of this epistle indicates that the believers to whom James wrote were scattered and struggling saints. And that they were scattered is underscored by the term dispersed in James 1.1. Now in the Greek text, diaspora is enjoined to the definite article he, meaning that it is a Jewish term referring to Jews living outside the promised land. Now the term diaspora was originally used of Jewish people living outside the land of Israel due to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. God scattered the Jewish people because of their disobedience. Deuteronomy 4, 25 and 27. When you act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, the Lord will scatter you amongst the people and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. Now, later this term was applied to Jewish believers who had been scattered as a result of persecution. Peter wrote his letter to Jewish believers who were scattered throughout five of Asia Minor's Roman provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Those scattered saints, James tells us, were from the twelve tribes. Make no mistake, the twelve tribes refers to the twelve tribes of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and those led by Moses to the promised land. And not only does the phrase 12 tribes underscore that his readers were Jewish, but that they all knew their tribal identity. This idea that the 10 northern tribes were lost is nothing more than a myth, an anti-Semitic myth, and poor exegesis of the scriptures. You know, one of the reasons Jesus chose the 12 apostles was for each one to sit on a throne and govern a particular tribe. Matthew 19, 28. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In fact, during the tribulation, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be identified as being from each of the twelve tribes. Revelation 7, 4-8. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, from the tribe of Manasseh, from the tribe of Simeon, from the tribe of Levi, from the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Zebulun, from the tribe of Joseph, from the tribe of Benjamin. 
And also take note that when John saw the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, in Revelation 21.12, he said that upon the twelve gates, names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Now these Jewish believers have been scattered to Syria and Asia Minor. That would be Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. And this was due to the persecution against Christianity, beginning with Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and 4. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, diaspero. Therefore, those who had been scattered, diaspero, went about preaching the word. Acts chapter 11, 19 and 20. So then those who were scattered, diaspero, because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now again, thinking of that term diaspora, the term not only means to be dispersed, but also to scatter seed. And what is interesting that is each time the believers were dispersed, the seed of God's word was scattered. The word of God, and particularly the gospel of Jesus Christ, was preached. And so we have to ask ourselves, how well have dispersed believers today scattered the seeds of the gospel and God's word? And take note that because the believers were scattered, it provided a network for Paul and company to preach the gospel. During his missionary journeys in almost every city or town where he preached, Paul began in the Jewish synagogues where the scattered saints were meeting. Have scattered saints or scattered churches today considered how being scattered has potentially provided new ministry opportunities? Perhaps reaching people in different ways than before will enable the church to reach people we would never reach otherwise. Fearfully, though, believers today, we are too interested in our comfort and getting back to normal. I got a question. What if God was not satisfied with what we think was normal? What if God used the pandemic to disrupt the normal, and to push believers out of our comfort zones in order to spread the gospel. You see, my friends, if we will not go and make disciples, then God will use any means necessary, be it persecution or pandemics, to make us go. Now see, they were scattered. These believers were strangers in a foreign land. And because of that, they were prone to loneliness and depression. And so one of James' purposes in writing was to counsel these scattered saints to know how to deal with their loneliness and depression. 21st century Christians have been scattered, in part because of a global pandemic. Being scattered or separated from family, friends, and fellow Christians has left many believers today struggling with loneliness and depression. Maybe you are. Well, James' letter is as profitable today as it was in the first century A.D. Now, James' other purpose 
in writing this epistle was to counsel struggling saints. Pastor James pens a pastoral letter to scattered saints to help them respond to ethical problems that they were struggling with. They were struggling with trials and temptations. They were struggling with being hearers but not doers of the words. They were struggling with worldliness. Again, this epistle is as relevant to us in the 21st century as it was to the believers in the 1st century. James' how-to manual for daily Christian living is going to help us today overcome our struggles in our personal lives and in our fellowship with other believers. Now, the underlying cause of their struggles was spiritual immaturity. Their spiritual immaturity showed itself in their impatience in times of trial. James 1, 2. It showed itself in their lack of control over their tongues. James 3. It showed itself in their infighting with fellow believers and covetousness. James 4. It showed itself in their misuse of money. James 5. And interestingly enough, we today, believers, struggle with the very same issues. James writes then to exhort scattered and struggling saints to go on to perfection. James 1.4, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 2.22, you see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. James 3.2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. By perfection, James does not mean sinlessness. Instead, he is exhorting believers to spiritual growth. And the same applies to you and me today. Are we growing spiritually? Again, one of the pressing needs of the church today is spiritual maturity. As Warren Wiersbe stated, too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. The fact that so many professing believers, after years of being in church are unable or simply have no desire to chew on solid food, that is biblical truth, demonstrates they are spiritually mature. Is that you? As Paul told the second generation Jewish believers in Hebrews 5, 1 through 4, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need to, for someone to teach you again the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And furthermore, the fact that so many professing believers are gullible and believe all kinds of wild conspiracy theories, having no credible support, demonstrates their inability to think biblically which is a byproduct of spiritual maturity. Without the solid food of Scripture, such believers have no ability to discern fact from fiction. You know, I just heard one not too long ago where a supposed pastor is telling people that a vaccine is going to make you transhuman, you're going to lose your soul, and therefore you're going to lose your salvation. My friends, I got news for you. Right from the pages of Scripture, Romans 8, 31 to 32, neither life nor death, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Let me tell you, when somebody is preaching that you can somehow lose your salvation or become unsavable is a false teacher. End of story. That is a clear denunciation of a biblical text. Believers, we need the solid food of Scripture so that we can discern fact from fiction. Yet so many believers today are unable to be actively, quote, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 That's what we're to do, believer. When we hear this kind of nonsense, we ought to be filtering it through the Bible. James Gold then, in writing this epistle to the scattered, struggling saints, is to encourage them to grow spiritually and equip them with the necessary tools to do so. Additionally, James opens this letter with one word, and an unusual one at that, greetings. The verb greetings, Cairo, is an infinitive with imperatival force, meaning rejoice or be glad. In a sense, James opens the letter by commanding his readers, commanding us to rejoice and be glad, even though they are scattered and struggling. And the rest of James' letter will provide the truths scattered and struggling saints need to rejoice and be glad. My friends, there is much to learn from James the servant. First, he was humble. Instead of relying on his relationship as Jesus' brother, he emphasized only his servitude towards Jesus. Second, James was a righteous man who strove to be holy. His piety for God's law earned him the nickname James the Just. Third, he was a man of prayer. He spent so much time in prayer that his peers referred to him as camel knees. And believer, you and I would do well to follow his example and be humble, be righteous, be prayerful, be obedient to Jesus your God and Lord. Are you that? Are you humble? Are you righteous? Are you prayerful? Are you obedient? You've got to answer those questions. Ask and answer those questions before a holy God. And regarding the issue of spiritual maturity, believer, we must consider three things. First, you need to determine if you're genuinely saved. Okay? Have you been born again by the word of truth? James 1.18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we'd be a kind of first fruit among his creatures. See, there can be no spiritual maturity where there's no new birth. Second, you need to examine your life against the Word of God. If you want to grow spiritually, you need to examine your life in light of God's Word. James 1, 23 and 25. If anyone's a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. You see, spiritual growth and maturity only occur by allowing the scriptures to expose areas of weakness and sinfulness and doing the hard work of repentance. And third, we must obey the scriptures regardless of the cost. James 1.22 Prove yourself to be a doer of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. My friends, spiritual growth does not come about 
by simply studying the Word. It's the result of studying and doing what the Scripture commands. My prayer as we go through this epistle of James, as we go through this how-to manual, is that we would be challenged in our spiritual growth and that we would go on to perfection in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank and praise you for the truths of this text that you presented to us. Two challenges, Father. A challenge to be like James, to be that servant and all that that entails. Lord, help us to humble ourselves. Help us to strive for righteousness. Help us, Father, to be people of prayer and help us to be obedient. But Father, also to look at our lives. That we're to be maturing, we're to be growing spiritually. And so, Father, I ask and pray that you would help us to that end. That first and foremost, Lord, we would make sure that we are genuine. And that, Father, that as we open your word and as it reveals to us our sins, that we would repent. And then, Father, we just wouldn't be satisfied just by studying the word, but then we would do what the scripture commands. Help us to go on. Help us to become perfect in Christ. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.